Hello once again, everybody. My name is David Wright. I'm Jackson Wright, and this is Apples and Oranges. Apples and Oranges, where we will compare the discographies of the Beatles against the Beach Boys. We are going through the Beatles discography pretty much in order, just just messing with the timeline just a little bit. We'll, we'll get to that soon. But we're, we're taking each Beatles album and we're matching it up against a contemporary Beach Boys album. Each matchup will be a two-part episode. Today, we are going to be stepping through track by track the Surfer Girl album by the Beach Boys. And then next week, we will come back and we'll do the same thing with With the Beatles. And at the end of that episode, we will give our final judgment on which one of these we think is better. All right, but well, let's just jump right into this. Uh, this is still 1963. Okay, the Surfing USA album came out in March of 63. We would see the Surfer Girl album come out in September of the same year. But before that happened, Brian Wilson had a number one hit. Around the same time that the Surfing USA album was being released, Brian was working with Jan and Dean in the studio, and he co-wrote Surf City with Jan Barry. song came out in May of 63 and it actually went all the way to number one. Surf City sounds like a Beach Boys album and for people that don't know better they might assume it's the Beach Boys that are singing. Jan and Dean had been around since the late 50s but once they met Brian Wilson and Brian became involved in their co in their writing and their production that's when they began to sound like a Beach Boys copycat group. Beach Boys and Jan and Dean they were like the the front runners for this whole sound and Brian was actually responsible to a large degree for both of the groups, not trying to diminish what Jan Barry was doing. But when Brian got involved, that's when you got Surf City. That's when you got Little Old Lady from Pasadena. That's when you got Dead Man's Curve. And so this was something that upset the Beach Boys. It yeah, upset Brian's, Brian's just being like Santa Claus here, giving them all these hits. Right. At this point, you know, the Beach Boys have not had a number one hit. And Brian's out writing and recording and performing. You're hearing his voice in falsettos huh. on the track, and it goes number one. It sounds like a Beach Boys record, but it goes to number one for another group, for another act. Mm. Dan and Dean get it. As the first surf song to ever hit number one, you can imagine that Murray Wilson and Mike Love were furious. The rest of the group was not happy. But Brian, like you say, Brian was having fun. Now, look, here's something we're going to get into in just a second. At this point, 1963, Brian already is not wanting to be on the road very much. He's already backing out of engagements whenever he can. And I think what we see here, and I think this is an indication, because 63 was a year that Brian was doing production for, for other acts, for several other acts outside of the Beach Boys, Jan and Dean just being one of them. And I think if Brian could have had con entire control of what happened, he probably would not have been a performing artist at all. I think he would preferred to have stayed in the studio and just been a producer a record producer. I think he would have been, he wanted to be more like a Phil Spector or a Burt Bacharach maybe, where he's, instead of being out on the road as part of a performing act, he's in the studio working with various people. I think if he had not been stuck in a family group where his dad was the manager, I think that might've been the direction he took. 
But anyway, he puts out Surf City in May of 63. It goes all the way to number one. And what we'll see as we get into these tracks is some of the residuals of him working with some other artists. And we'll, and we'll get to those in a minute as we as we get to those tracks. So so Surf City was was the first ever number one surf song, or was it the number one ever hit hit at all of a surf song, or was it the first ever number one surf song? For, it was the first number one. It was the first surf okay. song to hit number one. And the Beach Boys made like no money off of that. Uh, Brian Wilson, you know, did, but not the Beach Boys. Okay. Mm. And at this point, you know, the Beach Boys have yet to have a number one record. And as it would turn out, thanks largely to four lads from Liverpool, they would actually end up with very few number one hits at all. This mm. is one that could have been theirs if Brian had decided to keep it in the family. So, uh, you know, it's, it's already a case of Brian is just 20 years old here, but already you can already see the, the fracturing starting to happen within the group. Like they're, they're already fully dependent on him for their sound, yeah. but he's, but they want, they want him to themselves and they don't want to share him with anybody, but Brian just wants to, wants to spread the love and just, he just <laughs> loves music, wants to help other people. So that summer, June and July of 63, the Beach Boys return to the studio and begin work on their very next album. Yes, but there was a big change now because now the Beach Boys had gotten away from Capitol, right? And Brian was now basically in complete control of the recording process. Yes, that's actually a great point. This was actually historic. This was a massive change from what was normal at this time in the recording industry. Brian had pretty much been running the sessions at Capitol. They were they recorded the first two albums at Capitol Tower, and which 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 is a huge record company. Like for, absolutely for, for a small local band to get to Capitol. I mean that's what that's what people dream of. I mean the Capitol had the Beatles too, right? Right. Capitol would end up being the American or the North American distributor for the Beatles stuff. That would happen very soon. But the, yes, in, in the basement of Capitol Tower, they, these were the in-house studios for Capitol Records, which was the major record label where the Beach Boys had signed. The success of the Surfing USA album gave Brian and Murray, key player here, the leverage to kind of muscle Capitol Records and say, look, we want to be in control of the records and we want to record them somewhere else. That was a massive, mm. massive flex that really nobody of his stature yet you know because he hadn't become the brian wilson he was these were just the beach boy there's just a small group that had some success but that was about it but they were able to do that so for the first time ever brian wilson is officially listed as the producer of the album and they did not record this at capitol they took it back to western where they recorded those april 62 demos that they, where they love the sound so much that is a major 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 change yeah, and I feel like that really wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Mary. Like I can't I can't see Brian going to Capitol and, you know, kind of like forcing him to do what he wants. I can really see Mary just going in there and being himself, which if you don't know anything about Mary Wilson, he was very persuasive, very aggressive, very in your face, and he could he could he could do stuff like this. So I would see this more as like a, a Murray move that maybe he might not have even told the boys before he do it did it, but um, I really don't see this being a Brian decision, more of a yeah. Murray decision. Yeah, this is probably the case of Brian wanted it, and Murray was like, I got you. Um, Murray, Murray by, all, by a lot of accounts, was a monster. You know, he there's there's some, a lot of ugly stories we can get into with Murray, and it was a really 
bad situation, but where he helped the Beach Boys was his total belief in them in these early days. And he was the one that had the guts to like get in Capitol's faces and demand terms. And you're absolutely right. I don't think any of this would have gone the way it did if they didn't have Murray willing to fight for them. And so they they were able to do that. They got away. And so you're going to see with this album a, a tremendous level up in production and arrangement. And it's all because Brian was like set free. He didn't have to submit to whatever capital, whatever restrictions capital wanted to put on him. They were not in capital's presence. Capital was not involved in these sessions. Brian was in charge. He can make the decisions. And we're going to see that. We're going to see the arrangements get a little better. We're going to see the production gets a little better. It sounds better. So th this is a big change. Now, for the first time ever, I believe, an artist is officially credited with writing, producing, arranging, and performing his yeah. own material. Wow, ever. Now, that is historic. Like, that had never happened before. The game is changing right before our eyes. But... It had actually, as it turns out, had already happened once before in the 50s. Technically, I mean, it happened, it, it, it really happened like behind the scenes, but the credit wasn't given. So yeah. it, the knowledge didn't become public for a while. And Brian is the first one publicly, like officially credited with all of that. But there was another artist who actually did it. He just didn't get the official credit at the time. Do you know who it was? It was it uh, Buddy Holly, right? It was Buddy Holly. You're absolutely right. Yeah, he was a big influence, I think, on both the Beach Boys and the Beatles. I think you can hear a lot of Buddy Holly influence in the Beatles delivery, like the, just the energy of their performance. But yes, Buddy Holly, writing, producing, arranging and performing his own material. But again, this is very, very, very rare. This is a change in the game. And the fact that Brian was so young and they gave him this power and this leeway and this freedom and it was really, you know, the first time, this is the beginning of all this, because at the time in the record industry, a rock band, they were just the performers that belonged to the studio labels and they just did what they were told and the labels kind of controlled everything. And here was a case of like the rock band becoming a platform for personal artistic expression, a self-contained band that wrote and produced his own stuff. You go, well, the Beatles are doing that. Yeah, you're right. But the Beatles were doing it at the exact same time in Ocean Away. So it's, to me, that's another example that this fascinating parallel between the two bands. It had largely never been done before. And here it was, it was happening twice. It's it both you know, just happening to do it at the same time. Right. So, um, so for Brian Wilson to be doing this at this time, I mean, it's, I can't emphasize enough how unprecedented this was and how unlikely it was that he would be given this kind of leeway. And you can hear it in the album. And it absolutely delivers. Yeah, 100%. Okay, so a fun fact about this album cover is that the photo is actually from the previous year, the photo shoot for the Surf and Safari album. So it's that same exact day. I don't know why. They just couldn't be bothered to, I guess, do another photo shoot for this album. But you can only see five of the Beach Boys here. Al Jardine is not on this album cover because he was not with the band in that original photo shoot. So we don't see him on the album cover, but we do hear him on the record, which I'm sure he's not very happy about. Well, yeah, let me let me just interject right there. You're absolutely right. You know, Al Jardine was with him at the very beginning. Was did those early that 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 surfing record for the in, for the local independent label. He left just before they got their record deal. So Al is not on the first two albums, 
but we do hear him on this album. Like he comes back for this album. What I said before, where Brian was already looking to not tour, not make as many live appearances and wanted to stay in the studio. In order to do that, they brought Al Jardine back. Like Al Jardine had left town to like go to college. He comes back to California, you know, and his buds are all big time now. And he's like, what, you know, <laughs> Al Jardine's story is like the biggest second chance in rock and roll history, right? This is like if Pete Best came back to the Beatles and they let him back in. Yeah. Because Al Jardine was with them originally, left, they hit it big. And he comes back one year later and they, they let him back in. Yeah, he gets to be a beach boy anyway. I mean, I mean, he hit the lottery. So we do hear him on here because he came back to the group to play on the road to cover Brian's parts. So he's actually playing bass and singing falsetto on the road with David Marks still in the lineup playing guitar with Carl. And so we get that on this album. We're actually getting a six man lineup with both David Marks and Al Jardine on this album. And this allowed uh, for thicker arrangements, fuller arrangements. We're adding a piano or an organ now to the standard sound of the band because, because we have an, we have an additional member and Brian was able to move to the piano with, with Al playing the bass, but, but he wasn't around for that surf and safari photo shoot day in 62. So he's not on the album cover. It That's is. Kind of fair. Yeah. But you know, Al also missed the summer day, summer nights album cover shoot. And they just, they just went ahead without him and you know, he's not on there, but uh, he is a very, very important part of the mix and a part of the sound. And we're going to see how much that really improved the band, but it's an iconic image, right? With the, them lined right. up all carrying the surfboard together. Yeah, and that so, image is actually on the uh, Beach Boys Memorial in California right now in Hawthorne. The it's it's got it's got six people instead of five. They put Al on the surfboard in the memorial, but it's a replica basically of that album cover. Yeah, you're right. You're talking about the memorial in Hawthorne, California. Yep. The Wilson family home no longer exists. It got torn down for an interstate. But at the cul-de-sac that that construction job created, they've placed the this memorial marker for the beach boys like this was the this was the home of the beach boys right here and you're right it's got this embossed image that kind of evokes the surfer girl album cover but it's got six people carrying that surfboard by having six you're recognizing david marks david marks became like the forgotten beach boy like that weird substitute early on that disappeared and he was kind of yeah. largely written out of their histories for a long time so at this point i know al can play bass he's playing bass on the record right Yes. But he's mainly a guitarist, right, at this point. So right now, really, the Beach Boys have three guitarists out of their six-man lineup. That's true. But so I, they're, I they're think... able to get a lot of guitar parts in there, which I know Brian wouldn't really write for the guitar. He was mainly writing – he wrote on the piano, so a lot of his arrangement was made to be played on the piano. But if they have three guitars at this point, you would expect the songs to be more guitar-driven, this album, right? Yes, and also what you're hearing – is when Brian's playing the piano, he's playing like a rhythm part, like he's playing the rhythm guitar part, but he's playing with the piano. Hmm. And so that actually adds a lot of thickness to the sound. It's, it, it, it gives it a, a dimension that was missing on the first two albums. Gotcha. So tell us a little bit, when did this album come out? We're getting ready to go into this track by track. When was it released? Well, this came out on September 16th, 1963, and the single, The Surfer Girl, was released as a single on July 22nd, and that had Little Deuce Coop as its B-side. And fun fact about Surfer Girl as a song, Brian claims it was the first ever song that he's written, which for some reason he kept off the first album. That would have been a top-notch song for them to open with, but he saved it for this song. Maybe he wanted to work on it some more. 
uh, polish it up some, but he has it on this album. They released it as a single, his first ever song written, and it comes on pretty strong. It gets pretty high in the charts, right? Yes, it goes all the way to number seven on the album chart. And by the way, that single, the you said the backside was Little Deuce Coop. Yeah. So once again, they're following that pattern of putting a surfer-themed song on the A side and then putting a hot rod song on the B side. Now, you're getting a little bit into the information on that song, but you know what? It's the lead track on the album, so why don't we just roll right into it. Let's get started track by track. First up is the title song, is the single that came out in July. It is Surfer Girl. What what do you think of that song, bud? Well, I love it. It's a classic. I listen to it all the time. I don't even know if you really have to be a Beach Boys fan to know this song. Definitely not oh. to enjoy it. It's just beautiful. I mean, as one as the first song that Brian ever wrote, it's really impressive. Yeah, he does claim that this was the first song he ever wrote. He was inspired by When You Wish Upon a Star from the Disney movie Pinocchio. Let's listen to a little bit of that. When you wish upon a star no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires will come to Anyway, that right there is where he got that idea for the melody. And they did record an early version of this when they were with Hype Morgan, when they were on the local independent label oh, before right. they had the record deal. But this was a new recording. This was done in these sessions at Western with the six-man lineup. And it is just beautiful listen to those lush harmonies this you can't get enough of this you just need to immerse yourself i encourage everyone to just put on headphones turn it up loud and just lose yourself in all those harmonies you can just drown in them it is so so beautiful this is your vibe check for brian wilson if you listen to this and it does nothing to you like you can't recognize the skill and the quality and the, and the emotional depth. And if it doesn't move you, touch you in any way, I don't know what to do for you. <laughs> you're, you're, you're missing out on so much and so much more that is to come. Yeah. And, you know, one reason they're able to pull that off so early in their career is that you're not, while, yes, we're at a six-man lineup right now, and you're all singing a harmony, right? You got all the Beach Boys singing around one mic, and you have Mike Love, at his own separate mic, seeing his bass parts or his lead parts. That's usually how they did it. But while we get those still a six-part harmony, we're hearing multiple layers of it. He's doing overdubs with multiple takes. So really, while it's the same six voices, really, you're getting like four or five or who really knows how many layers of those harmonies. And it just gives it a really bright and rich sound that we get throughout the entire album. You're absolutely right. It's very smart to point that out. When he was able to get away from Capitol Tower and produces on sessions. He was at Western Studios, and this is where he began his partnership with Chuck Britz. Chuck Britz was an engineer at that studio and would be Brian's engineer all the way through, I think, the Smile Project. And he was kind of an older guy that had been in the industry for a long time, and he knew the tricks and he knew the tools. And he was able to not only bring Brian's vision to reality, but also just show Brian and teach Brian 
what options were available in the studio, right? And so yeah. we're already seeing double tracking on Mike's lead vocal in the, in the previous album, but he was doing the same with the block harmonies here. You're right. He would, he would you know, working with a four track, he mixed all the music down to the one track, freed up the other three, and it was all vocals. Yeah. Yeah, you could really see where his priorities were for the music. He could tell that their harmonies are really something to fall back on for the strength of their sound. Well, the Beach Boys' special talent was their harmony. Yeah. And because they could sing as a group and balance themselves, they were all gathered around one mic, like you said, except for Mike Love, who was mic'd separately. But they recorded everybody at once. And instead of having to record on individual tracks and mix it later, they were doing that live. But, but then they would double track it. They would do it again on another open track and they do it again a third time. And so even though it's just these Beach Boys, you're hearing like 12, 24, 36 voices going and it's just a, it creates a very very rich bed so yeah you're absolutely right about that which it was honestly pretty rare for people to start doing this like at least so extremely because it wasn't very common at the time now was it no i don't think it was you know it took a visionary you know it took someone with creativity to go yeah you're right this can't be duplicated on stage but i don't care i can create it in the studio it was yeah. truly using the studio and the studio technology the recording technology to create a sound that otherwise could not exist yeah and that was brian wilson's special gift and you, you're hearing it right away well with just right out of that first track surfer girl on this album so it's just a very 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 special song and i can't say enough about it yeah and they would they would go on to record another version of this in 1967 when they're live in hawaii and that version really it takes the harmonies to another level they they kind of dialed down on the instrumentation of it and focus on the vocals and honestly i would say i prefer that version of it because you get to enjoy the best parts of the song a lot more i think it's a bit longer too but yeah let's play a clip of that real Yeah, that was a failed live album project from 1967 called Late in Hawaii, where Brian just had this idea of using his organ to handle the arrangements of for all the songs. And it was just kind of a weird thing that really didn't work and didn't come off. And that album never got released. But interesting to hear you say you actually prefer this version of Surfer Girl better. And once again, I mean, it's just the harmonies carry it. And if you can just eliminate everything else and just focus on the voices, you can't go wrong with that. So I can't blame you for that one at all. Yeah, absolutely. It's an absolute classic. And I mean, they play it at all of their live shows. Everybody knows everybody sings along. And it's just a really important song for them. And I would say it's definitely the best song we've heard from the Beach Boys so far by a long shot. I mean, absolutely. And it will be in the best on the album. I don't know. But it's looking strong so far. And if the rest of this album is going to be anything like this song, we are in for a treat. Well, buckle up. I think we might be in for a treat. Uh, the Beach Boys, unlike any other band, really, I think probably have 30 or 40 like iconic classic songs, yeah. right, that will endure forever. And Surfer Girl is absolutely at the top of that list. It is an extremely important song, a, a, a trademark signature song for them. Like I said, they have about 30 signature songs. But this one, if you're not moved by this, you're not listening closely enough. This is near perfection. 
what a way to start this album. Yeah, very strong for the Beach Boys, and we will hear that they follow it up quite nicely. Absolutely. So with that, let's move on. We got a whole bunch of great songs to get to. Here we go. Track number two. Catch a wave and you're sitting on top of the world. What do you think of that one? I, I love it. I listen to it all the time. It's got everything a great Beach Boys song has. It's got the harmonies. It's got the hook at the beginning. It's got great guitar riffs. I mean, what more can you ask for, really, as a follow-up? I think this is actually an improvement on Surfing USA. You can hear it in the arrangement, like the production, like the sound of this record is you can just tell that it's better right you've got that plus plus it's an original song it's yes it is totally original you've got the piano in the rhythm section right playing rhythm so you're thickening the sound already right there guess what else they do they add a harpist you're hearing you're hearing a harp on this on on more of a rock song absolutely guess who's playing the harp that that was uh my club's sister right yes that was maureen love playing the harp she's on this track she's on another track later in the album we'll get to it but yes so again we're expanding from that garage band lineup this i don't think that that's a little piece that i don't think would have existed if they had stayed at capitol for the recording sessions but you were adding the harp we're adding the piano and you're double tracking or triple tracking all the harmonies it's just a powerful song boom 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 bob it gets you right away this is a scorcher. I love this song. Of all their surfing songs, this one may actually be my favorite. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a really uh, interesting choice from Brian to put the harp on this song. You'd think it would fit better on Surfer Girl, but honestly, now that you mention it, I, now I hear the harp. But before, when I think it's, when I think of Catch Wave, I do not hear the harp part. But every time it gets to that point in the song, you always are kind of anticipating it and you kind of, you know, hunt the melody yeah. along, or at least I do. Yeah. And it sounds kind of like the yeah. sprinkle of water, a little spray of water, you know? Yeah, it fits. Absolutely, it fits. Which is not which is not something everybody can do. Not everybody can take a harp and put it in a rock song and make it work. You're exactly right. Now, here's the thing that blows my mind. This song was never released as a single. Hmm. Wow. Like, really? I can't, yeah, I can't get my head around that. To wow. me, this is a signature song. I mean, I think they this is a song. Not, they must have not had it. it they must have not even realized it was going to be a hit or didn't think it was good enough. I don't know, because you would think they would at least put it, well, they wouldn't have broken that hot rod and surfing thing they had going for the singles, but they should at least have followed it up. They must have known it was going to be a hit. They seem to put full production into the into the track, so yeah. I don't know why they wouldn't. To me, this is, this is number one quality. This could have been a number one hit. Brian Wilson would take this song to Jan and Dean. They would make their own version of it, but with a skateboarding theme. Listen to Sidewalk Surfing. Grab your board and go sidewalk surfing with me. Don't be afraid and try the newest sport around. Bust your buns, bust your buns down. It's catching on in every city town. You can do the tricks a surfer do, just try a One thing I really love about this song is you can really hear the different vocal parts. I mean, Brian is clearly Brian. Mike is clearly Mike. You can hear Dennis in there with the little spots. You've got Carl and, and Al doing backup. 
it is a full Beach Boys track. It is so exciting. It's just an electric rocker. I absolutely love it. I don't know what else I can say about it. This is a banger. This is another iconic song. Surfer Girl is iconic. Catch a Wave is iconic. We are off to a scorching start with this album. Yeah, absolutely. Side one's looking very strong so far. So what do we have next? How are you going to follow up on two of your most iconic songs in, in your entire discography? Well, we're actually going to change gears a little bit. As I said earlier, Brian had been spending time in 1963 working with other acts. Janadine was just one of them. There was another obscure act called Bob and Sherry, and he co-wrote this next song with Bob Norberg, who was the Bob in Bob and Sherry. This song is called Surfer Men. There's a moon in the sky somewhere I know Waiting for all the love to burn below If you fall and it happens all too soon Blame it all on the surfer moon All right, bud, what do you think of that and what stands out to you about that track? Yeah, I think this is one of those songs that maybe you have to be kind of a Beach Boys fan to appreciate, but it's not that hard to enjoy either. It's a, it's a nice, yeah, it's a step down from Catch a Wave, and honestly, I think it could have been probably a smoother transition. It goes from pretty much 100 to pretty low. Could Probably better transition song in there somewhere, but it's a nice song. It's easy to sing along to, pretty catchy. It's very nice, very pleasant to listen to. I don't really particularly love it too much. It's a nice song, but I'm not really going to go pick it out just to listen to it by itself. And honestly, I'll probably skip it most of the time listening to the album. But if it was put somewhere else on the album, maybe if they if they started with Catch a Wave, then done Surfer Girl, and then Surfer Moon, it probably would have been you know a little better of a climb down like that. But okay. yeah, they did what they did. Okay. Well, I have to say, I do love it. I don't skip it when I'm listening to the album. It is, it is absolutely, you're right, a massive step down in energy from Catch a Wave. You know, it's a massive change of pace. But here's what jumps out to me about this. Number one, there are no other Beach Boys on this track. It's only Brian. It starts off with Brian double tracking himself, singing the same part twice, but then it splits off into harmony. And now you're hearing Brian harmonize with himself. And so all of the parts you hear, it's only Brian's voice. He's again, through the use of the studio technology, something you can't do live. He is producing basically a solo track with him singing all the harmony parts. Here's the other part that jumps out at me. It's employing a string section. So yeah. already, you know, right? All right, you know where this is going, right? This is going to Pet Sounds. This is going to the full Wrecking Crew. This is going to these lush orchestral yeah. arrangements. And here we are, 1963. We're only one year out from their debut album, okay? Because that's how quickly these albums are coming out. It's their third album, but they're one year away from their debut. And already, Brian is bringing in string instruments to the arrangement. That's the thing about this album. It's a massive, massive step up from the first two, just in the technical quality of the sound, but also in the arrangements of it. Uh, we're getting things that we didn't hear on the first two albums, and I don't think we would have heard if Brian hadn't been given full control. And so I love this song for what it is. It's Brian by himself harmonizing with himself. It's the first use of strings in a Beach Boys song. And it, to me, it shows Brian flexing his muscles in the studio. So this is a winner for me. It's not a skipper. I put it in the plus column. Yeah, but, I, I didn't know it was a, a, the first Beach Boys instrument with strings on it, but that's cool. But let's don't waste any more time on it. We've got plenty of songs to get to. Next up, number four is South Bay Surf. Look out, here come those South Bay Surfers. 
we'll find the big one. So this song is actually the rework of a song by Stephen Foster, which is an all-time classic called Swanee River. And you might not actually know that song, but I'm sure we all recognize that melody to some extent because it's just iconic. So uh, it's instantly catchy. You know, it's just it's just got that groove. It's just got that beat. It's a head bopper for me. I don't know. I like it. Musically, it's not too complicated and it's not anything crazy. Not a lot of lush harmonies or anything like that, but it's just a bop. I like it. I listen to it just for fun. Well, I have to say my opinion of it is a little bit different. I, I, I'm not as impressed with it. If It's a little bit flat for me, mainly because the Beach Boys are not harmonizing. There's no harmony on this song. It is everybody singing, but they're all just singing in unison. And I think it gives it kind of a flat texture. But the thing about Swanee River, yeah, it's a classic Americana song. It dates back probably to the 19th century. I have no idea. But another group that Brian was working with during this time where he was producing for them was a girl group called the Honeys. And if there was a female counterpart to the Beach Boys, it was the Honeys. And they did a lot of surfing songs and stuff like that. So do you know who were the members of the Honeys? Yeah, actually, the, pretty much the key member of the Honeys was Brian's girlfriend at the time, right? Oh, uh, yeah, Marilyn. Her, her sister was in the group, along with her cousin. And it was kind of like the Beach Boys were, where like, they were a family situation. Marilyn was Brian's girlfriend. And they would end up getting married and having a family. So Marilyn Ravel of the Honeys is the future mother of Carney and Wendy Wilson from Wilson Phillips. And the reason I mentioned them is because at around this time, a little bit before they started the sessions for this album, Brian recorded a song for them called Surfing Down the Swanee River. They used this same Stephen Foster melody. So anyway, again, just like with Janet Dean and Bob and Sherry, here he is with the Honeys, and he's bringing in this material to help fill out this album. So that's really about all there is to say about it. I think of all their surfing songs, this one kind of it goes in a category of a noble surfer that we talked about from the previous album. And there's another one a little bit on here that also doesn't quite hit for me. But anyway, this is based on Swanee River, and there's a little bit of history there with what he was doing with the Honeys. So that is South Bay Surfer. It can be considered the first cover on the album. And if you want to think of it that way, I think it's a good one. They put their own little Beach Boys twist on it, and I like it. Now, Brian Wilson does get a co at least a co-writing credit, if not a full solo writing credit, on every single track on this album. Okay, so that was a first. But you're right. This is taking a Stephen Foster song and reworking it. So it it is a version of someone else's song. All right, that's it for South Bay Surfer. What do we have next? Well, we have the return of the dreaded instrumental. This oh is a Brian Wilson original called The Rocking Surfer. All right, instrumental, bud. What do you think of this? I think about it just about how I think about pretty much every other instrumental we've heard of them so far. I do not vibe with it. It does nothing for me. Yeah, this is actually based on another song called Come and Get It by a group called The Tri-Fives. Brian does bring 
something new to it. He does get a co-writing credit on this. I think he might get a solo credit on this. But what can you say about it? It's another instrumental. I don't know. I, I, yeah. This is usually a skipper for me. Side one has kind of gone down pretty fast, but he will pick it back up eventually. I'm going to be honest, I skipped this song 100% of the time. Is this the last one of their career, at least for a while? It's not. No, it is not the last instrumental we'll have. We'll find that out as we continue to go through their discography. I think this album started out fantastic. The South Bay Surfer knocked it down and Rocking Surfer definitely knocks it down. We need to do something to pick it back up. Definitely. So what, what do we have to save this side one? We have everything we need to save side one. Another classic, iconic song, Little Deuce Coop. Little Deuce Coop to the rescue. What do you think about this one? Classic. Love it. It's everything they needed for side one. I mean, I mean, we have three absolute classic songs. I mean, everybody knows it. Everybody loves it. I, I mean, I, I don't really know really what else to say about it, but it's just classic. I mean, how do you, how do you give us better than this? I, you can't. I, for years, this was my favorite Beach Boy song. Really? I never, never, ever get tired of listening to this song it is so much fun it goes by so quickly there's so much happening it's like sensory overload for me i have to listen to it one time just to listen to brian i'll immediately re-listen just to hear mike then I'm, i'll listen to it a third time just to concentrate on the background vocals i'll do it a fourth time just to listen to the music track behind it all it it, it there's too much going on at once for my ears i can't handle it all at once i have to hear it over and over and over again i love Little Deuce Coop. I never ever get tired of it. Yeah, me neither. It, it's on. It's on all of my sixties playlists. It's on my rock playlist. I just I love it, and they know it's a hit. It's on every single one of their live shows. They put it at the end of the album to save it to get you to side two, and it's just, it's just a monster, and it blew up for him, right? Absolute monster. It was the B side to the single, and that again continued the pattern of these amazing double sided hits. Just like the Surfer Girl album peaked at number seven on the album charts, the Surfer Girl single peaked at number seven on the Billboard Hot 100. Hmm. But Little Deuce Coop, as the B-side, actually went all the way to number 15 as its own hit. If it had been the A-side of a separate single, it probably would have done better. But what a monster double-sided single of Surfer Girl and Little Deuce Coop. Both sides of that single end up in the top 20. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like what a lot of bands are doing is they'll put their strongest song as the A-side single and kind of a weaker song as the B-side of that. But I don't think that's what the Beach Boys are doing here. I think they're putting their two strongest songs, A-side and a B-side, not necessarily saying that the B-side was worse than the A-side. I think they're just hitting them with both of their strongest stuff, which uh, makes a lot of sense to me. I would feel like they didn't think this song was very much inferior at all. I think they're very close. I don't even know if I could decide which one I like better, but I think they're very close. And I don't think they were trying to say that Little Deuce Coop was some shadow of Surfer Girl or anything. I mean, I mean, I don't know how much business sense it makes because people are going to buy the single for the A-side. And yeah. if you're sitting on a winner like Little Deuce Coop, put it out. You know, pick something else. Put South Bay Surfer as the B-side. Then you put Little Deuce Coop out a couple months later, you'll sell it all over again. And of course, as the logic goes, people realize there's a couple of singles, two or three singles from the same album. They're going to go out and get that album too. 
So I, it seems like a wasted opportunity to put them both on the same record. But as a consumer and as a fan, how can you possibly complain? This is an all-time American rock and roll classic. Yeah, absolutely. And this is actually the first example of a shuffle beat in a Beach Boy song, which is something that Brian Wilson would definitely go back to throughout the songwriting career. In songs like even Little St. Nick kind of uses this songwriting structure very similarly. It's just cool to see Brian latching on to certain things he likes about his songs and using it later. Yeah, he would. they would record Little St. Nick very shortly after this album came out because that song came out for the holiday season of 63. And you're right, it's using that same kind of Little Deuce Coop shuffle beat. We hear the shuffle on Help Me Rhonda. If you jump all the way to his George Gershwin cover album from like 2010, um, he's got a song on there where he put that Little Deuce Coop shuffle beat on it. So it's definitely a favorite pattern of his. He'll, he'll keep going back to it. It's kind of a trademark of Brian Wilson. Yeah, absolute banger. And this, this song closes outside one takes us to side two what do we have what a way to end side one right but we're going to change the vibe here real quickly we're going to lift that needle up we're going to flip the vinyl over but we're putting this needle down on track number one and we're about to enter heaven go with me to the wilson brothers bedroom as we hear a young brian a young dennis and a young carl harmonize this is in my room there's a world where I can go and tell my secrets to in my room, in my room, in my room. Wow. I cannot, I've got goosebumps now just thinking about this song what a beautiful piece of art this is one of brian wilson's absolute highest highlights of his entire career i don't know how to describe how amazing and how beautiful this song is yeah absolutely i, I love it i mean it's totally different from anything we've heard from him so far i mean Surfer Girl is kind of similar, but this just takes it to a whole other intimate level where you just really see, you know, what Brian's capable of when it comes to crafting those be beautiful melodies. Yeah, and so what we hear at the beginning of this song is Brian singing solo, and on the second line, Carl joins him, and on the third line, Dennis joins him, and that's what I was talking about earlier. We're hearing these three Wilson boys harmonizing together, and it's a song about a teenager finding solace, finding an oasis of peace from the world, just in his room where he can lock out all his worries and his fears. This is another track where we have Maureen Love, Mike's sister, playing the harp on this track. It is peak Brian Wilson. So this is kind of similar in subject matter to There's a Place, the John Lennon song from Please Please Me that we just talked about in our last episode. And we referenced this song then when we were talking about that track. Listen to Brian Wilson's voice on this record. It is absolutely pristine. It is so so perfect perfectly clear perfectly fragile it's the emotion packed in this song it's this song can truly move you if you let it i recommend everybody just putting on those headphones again and just losing yourself in like a dedicated immersive listen of this song it is incredible 
Yeah, absolutely. I love this song. And, you know, David Crosby from Crosby, Stills, and Ash, he actually said when he heard this song, he just wanted to call it. He wanted to quit the music business just because he thought it had already been done. He felt like he could not add anything else to the music industry after he heard this song. It just absolutely blew him away. And, I mean, musicians from all around the world have really just praised this song, especially for being so early in, in Brian's songwriting career. It's just really amazing. This is another signature song, Hall of Fame, Top Shelf. What more can you say? This goes up there with Surfer Girl, Catch a Wave, Little Deuce Coop, and now we have In My Room. Are you kidding me? This is all. This is not a greatest hits album. This is just a regular studio album. This is blowing my mind. I, I want to spend an hour just trying to express how beautiful this song is. There's nothing more to say about it. It's vocal purity. It's vocal perfection. Please, everybody, take time out of your day. Stop everything else and just swim in these harmonies and listen to what a 21-year-old Brian Wilson is able to accomplish. I don't ever want to move on from this song, but let's keep it going. Let's go to track number two on side two, and that is Hawaii. Do you want to go? That one's kind of fun. What do you think of that one, bud? I love that one. I love singing along with Brian Wilson on that one. Like, for some reason, I have kind of a, a deep voice when it comes to talking, but when I sing, I can sing pretty much on par with Brian. I mean, I cannot sound as good, but I can hit the same notes. So it's just fun for me to sing along with him on this one. And uh, it's just really catchy. Honestly, I haven't listened to this as much as a lot of their hits, but every time I do, I wish I listened to it more often because I just love it. It's so catchy. I like it and it's on a lot of my playlist. I dig it. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I think it's a lot of fun too. This was not a song that I knew growing up when I was just kind of like a part of the general public that was just generally aware of all the Beach Boys hits. This was not one that was on my radar. I found out about it later once I got into the group. But I agree, it's just a lot of fun. It, it kind of fits that same early surfer rocker formula and it's a proven success for a reason. I mean, you got Brian singing the high parts. It's a little bit tricky on the lead vocal. Now, this is not something I think that's been proven definitively, but I've heard it suggested, and I tend to believe it. I think Brian is doing a little studio trick here. You know how we've already talked about how he would double track lead vocals? Yeah. I think he's double tracking the lead vocal here, but I don't think it's the same person twice. Mm -hmm. I think we're hearing Mike and Dennis double tracked on the lead. Really? Their song is like, their, their voice is like a weird combination of the two of them. I think Brian was just, just flexing in the studio just to get a different sound and get it, get a different texture. I think it happens on another song we're going to talk about here later on side two, but I think that's what we're getting here. I've always just thought it was Mike, but it always sounded like it was just a little bit off. It wasn't classic Mike, but I think we're actually hearing both Mike and Dennis. Anyway, which it, if it's, it's which if that was a studio trick from Brian, it's just cool to see how uh, Brian Wilson wasn't even really trying to put these flexes, if you want to call them that, on display for everyone to see. He was just doing it for himself, really, and for the general sound of the song that not everybody's really going to notice. Yeah, just trying different things, you know, not being afraid to experiment in the studio, not worried about if you can replicate it live or not, and just really uh, just showing how his natural habitat is in the studio. It wasn't on stage. This is where he wanted to be. This is a banger. This is another 10 out of 10. As far as I'm concerned, it's another signature song. Fantastic. Grand Slam. What else can we say about it? Anything? 
that's all I've got in Hawaii. But yeah, great start to side two. And uh, this album's already, I think, the best we've seen out of the Beach Boys yet. Yeah, and the high parts where Brian's coming in with the high notes at the, at the end of the song and the repeat and the fade out, just, just, just pure classic Beach Boys sound. Love it. I mean, this is this is like crack to me. I can listen to it all day long. Absolute banger. But let's keep going. Let's get through side two. Coming up next, we have at track number three on side two, Surfers Rule. It's a genuine fact that the surfers rule. What do you think of that one, bud? Yeah, I can see what the Beach Boys are going for here. I think it's definitely not as strong as some of their big hitters on the album, but it's also stronger than a lot of the other songs we have seen that are not their all-time classics. So right now, it goes right in the perfect middle of that category, I think, where uh, it's a good step down from Hawaii with, without being uh, as dramatic of a change as Catch a Wave to Surfer's Moon. Um, I think this is a step down. I don't think this is quite up to their standard. It's one of the weaker tracks on the album. I kind of put it down there with South Bay Surfer. I think they were just trying to fill out the album here at this point. But here's the interesting thing about this song. So this is pre-British Invasion, right? This is pre-Beatlemania. And at this time, the Beach Boys' number one rivals was actually the Four Seasons. Really? They, were, they were kind of the East Coast equivalent of the Beach Boys, and they were good on harmonies and stuff like that. And you hear them call them out. Like, this is the original diss track, right? Right. You, at the end of the song, you hear Four Seasons, you better believe it. They're totally calling out the competition. And then Brian goes into, like, this Frankie Valley falsetto at the end of the song to kind of carry it out. Which is, he's, he's almost he's almost a flex there, like, like I can out Frankie, Frankie himself. Um, it's it's something that dates the song, you know. It, it's very topical, but at the time, everybody understood it and knew what it meant. But it's kind of interesting to hear them just call out their competition like that. That's funny. And it also, you know, it's kinda... it's not it's not in like some kind of like rude or mean way. It's it's just kind of it's it's all fun. I don't think uh, Four Seasons took any kind of offense to it. No, no, you're right. It was a healthy competition. As a matter of fact, they ended up collaborating on a song in the '80s. But anyway, it's 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 just kind of interesting to hear that. There you go. Rock and Roll's first diss track. But we don't need to spend any more time on it. This next song, Jackson, this song's fantastic. Are you ready? This is Our Car Club. I've been cruising on the town now. The guys are quite a while. Oh, we've been thinking about starting up a club that shows the fast and style. And we'll get the finest cars. That's our car club. I set it up like that because I know that you like this song a lot. And a lot of people love this song. A lot of Beach Boys fans are really big on this song. It doesn't quite hit it for me, but I have to say the track itself, like the music behind it, it absolutely moves. It, it's got you moving. It's that part of it's a lot of fun. What do you think of our car club? I like it. I think it's kind of like the little brother of Be True to Your School. 
And it's just really catchy. It's got a lot of vocal arrangement going on. It's just kind of typical Beach Boys stuff. It's got everything that a good Beach Boys song has. It's got a good track, good backing track, good background vocals, a solid melody. Just a fun story that fits with the times, you know? I'm not a car person in the least, but I'm sure for car fans, you'll like this song. I like it just for the music, but it's fun to hear them singing about this, trying to connect with the high school kids, kind of. Yeah, the strength of the song is definitely the track. It's the subject matter that kind of rings false to me because I know that in real life, these guys were like not gearheads, you know, no. and for trying to tap into that car culture, that hot rod culture. But <laughs> real hot rod people are not sitting around singing and snapping their fingers, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, like uh, there's a classic Broadway musical called West Side Story, which is which is about these warring New York street gangs. And my dad, your grandfather, was a big fan of the stage play and the the musical movie they put out based on the play. And he just, he loved stuff like that. And cause, cause he just loved singing, loved music. And I sat down to watch that with him one time and it starts off with these street gangs, like dancing and snapping their feet. Like it's, it was so weird. It was so, <laughs> it's so not street that I couldn't <laughs> take it seriously. And I just started busting out laughing. I'm kind of the same way. There's a credibility issue here when it comes to car club and people singing about car club. I don't know. It just doesn't ring true for me. Yeah, but, that's point. but the track is fantastic. There's, there's these horns going, you know, and here's a case of an early example of Brian bringing in outside session musicians. This is the first hint toward the Wrecking Crew. Like we're actually hearing Hal Blaine on drums on this track. He was the legendary drummer of the Wrecking Crew. He'd end up working a lot with the Beach Boys. We're hearing him here. Obviously there's nobody in the Beach Boys that's playing the horns and it's a major, major part of the sound of this song. But I'm gonna surprise you with something. I'm sitting on something you don't know about. Guess what song inspired the, the horn section, the horn arrangement that we hear in this song. I don't know. I got nothing. This took inspiration from a 1962 Herbie Hancock song called Watermelon Man. Herbie Hancock. Listen, that's exactly right. I didn't know he was doing records in the early 60s. But listen <laughs> to a little bit of Watermelon Man and see if you can hear the inspiration for our car club. Anyway, that's a little bit of Watermelon Man. That helped inspire Brian Wilson with our car club. Yeah, I actually was not expecting you to say Herbie Hancock at all. <laughs> um, I listened to one song by him a while ago, and I, I don't think it was a 60s song. I think it came out in the late 80s called Chameleon. I learned it on bass because it's just the same bass line over and over again, but it's so fun to play, and it just builds and builds. I didn't know he was an artist in the 60s, but that, that's really cool. I wasn't expecting I that. Either. You know, you hear one thing, and it makes your brain go in a different direction, and you end up with something else. But if it inspired Brian, then, hey, it's notable. Uh, as a child of the 80s, to me, Herbie Hancock means rocket, and it'll always mean rocket. I, you know, I, I love Herbie Hancock just for that reason. But anyway, that's all I got on our car club. You know, the track is fantastic. Again, this is an example of Brian getting away from capital, being in charge of his own sessions, and it's an example of the arrangements becoming more complex, right? The sound is bigger. The sound is thicker. He's bringing in different kind of instruments. This is a different approach than what we saw on the first two albums. The sound of this album and the different instrumentation, the different arrangements compared to the first two albums, we're on a whole nother level. And now for track number five on side two, we hear a classic, just pure 
Brian Wilson ballad. It's called Your Summer Dream. Drive your car down to the sea. What do you think about your summer dream? I think it's good. I think it's sweet. I don't really think it's anywhere close to in my room. To be honest with you, it is kind of boring for me. I have to be in the right mood to be able to listen to it. But it's still pretty. And if, if you are in the right mood, then it's a good listen. But most of the time I do skip it just because, you know, it doesn't really do it for me. But I, I feel like it's one of those things where it is a good song. I just happen to not like it. So that's what I think about it. I think it's a beautiful ballad. It's very much a Brian Wilson song, not so much a Beach Boy song. There are some harmonies on here, but this is Brian, I think, just kind of writing to his own strength and his own taste and not necessarily worried about making a Beach Boys hit. This is definitely an album track. There's never going to be a single, and it's not one that's like classic and well-known outside of fandom, but, but I've got nothing to complain about. I mean, his voice is just pure and just beautiful. The, his piano, that the kind of rhythmic way he's playing the piano is classic, you know, signature Brian Wilson. To me, it, this song, it, this is one of his personal favorites. I think he actually covered it himself on a on his solo album in 1998, the Imagination album, if I have that right. And to me, it comes at a right spot on the album to help fills it out. It, to me, when you're listening to the album, it's not a skipper. I don't know if there are any skippers on this album. But anyway, that's your summer dream. It's a beautiful Brian Wilson ballad. I don't know what else to say about it. It, it doesn't go on the top shelf, but to me, it's, it's got its own beauty and its own appeal, and, and it's absolutely worth listening to. I enjoy it. But now, it's time to close out the album. We're on the final track. Guess what we have, son? Can you guess? Uh, don't say it's another instrumental. It's another instrumental. Oh they were doing so good. I uh, know. All right, so we end on Boogie Woody, not Boogie Woogie. Okay, they call it Boogie Woody. Woody referencing the famous kind of wood panel station wagon that surfers like to use. It's a play on Boogie Woogie, which is what this is. This is a piano. This is a Boogie Woogie piano thing. mother audrey wilson is credited on this album and i'm pretty sure that this is the track that she's on she liked boogie piano she taught the kids boogie piano when they were growing up and if you listen to this track it's kind of like a it's kind of like a duel you kind of hear what i'm hearing is a piano and an organ kind of facing off against each other like one will play a part and then the other one comes in and responds to it and it's kind of like piano versus organ battle and I don't know this for sure. I don't have any sources. I don't, I don't, I'm not referencing anything when I say this. But knowing that Audrey is on this album somewhere, I'm guessing that this is this piano organ battle we're hearing is Audrey versus Brian. And if, if that's what's happening, it gives it a little bit of interest, you know, and I can listen to it. But to me, this is something Brian would sit down on piano and knock out automatically, like not even thinking about it. He might be thinking about his grocery list or what they're going to do later while his hands are just automatically going through this boogie piano riff and it's just like super simple and super fast and it's over and done 
this of all the tracks on the album, this is the one that just feels like straight filler to me. Some feel like they had a little less effort than others, like South Bay Surfer and Surfer's Rule. But this is one where like this was like the brain turned off. This is just what automatically comes out of Brian's hands. They needed one more track to fill out the album. So of the, of the three albums we've heard so far, I think this is actually the weakest closer, the weakest closing track. But do you have anything on it? It's just to me, it's just a, to me, it's just a filler instrumental. And if there is a skipper anywhere on here, it's going to be this one for me. The, the, the idea that keeps it alive in my head is that it, this could be a battle between mother and son on the piano and the organ. But what do you think? Yeah, I think it would have been a better decision to, to swap the musician of your summer dream in this song. Just to not quite end on such a bad note and kind of leaving the album with that kind of dreamlike kind of song. But Oh, that's a know, good they, idea. Yeah, they decided they decided to go this route. And uh, yeah, I agree with you. Nothing special, really. Um, I can't really picture Brian putting too much effort into this, like you were saying. So I skip it every single time. There's no doubt that this took no time at all for him. And I, I never thought about that before. If you just swap the last two tracks, and you close with difference. Yeah, it does. And I think it would give your summer dream a little more weight. Yeah. And I, I think I think it could affect people's perception of that song because it seems like an also ran kind of song. But if you if you could separate it from context and just listen to it on its own, it's actually a really good song. If you give it that place of honor as the closing track, maybe maybe it gets considered a little bit differently. Anyway, that is the Surfer Girl album. That is twelve tracks. They're basically all original. I mean, Brian gets a credit on every one of the tracks. We do have a reworking of Swanee River by Stephen Foster. And we do, The Rocking Surfer is kind of directly inspired by someone else's track. But you see Brian's name on all 12 of these tracks. It's the first time we've ever seen that. He's the producer, the listed official producer. And they're producing this album independently of the record label. This is an unprecedented, this is a historic level of independence for a young artist. And we're just really seeing the, the really, this is the beginning of the emergence of that self-contained rock band that, that are true artists with bringing a personal expression uh, to their records. We see it starting right here with Brian Wilson and the beach boys surfer girl. What do you think, bud? Yeah, I love it. I mean, I mean, it's super strong album for being so early in their career. It's going to be hard for the Beatles to match up against this, but we'll, we'll have to see what they have. But uh, yeah, I love it. I got to get it on vinyl. It's been all the time. This album is so strong. It is strong all the way through. This is one of their best total in their catalog, but certainly among their best in the early days. It is levels above Surfing Safari and Surfing USA. The production is levels above. The arrangement is levels above. The songs, there, there's so many more good songs on here. This is this album is 10 out of 10. It is Hall of Fame for me. I love Surfer Girl. If I'm only picking four or five Beach Boys albums, they have close to 30. If I'm only picking four or five, this is in that group. Love Surfer Girl. Now, tell them what we have coming up next week on the other side of this matchup. Yep, next week we are going track by track with the Beatles. The Beatles' second ever studio album. It's going to be a great episode. It's basically the precursor of what would be Beatlemania in the United States. We're going to see what the Beatles have to offer to go against Surfer Girl by Beach Boys. Yeah, so the order we do these bands in each matchup will depend on the release date of the albums we're talking about. And as it works out, that's going to put the Beach Boys first in the matchup on most occasions. Not every single one of them, but for a lot of them. 
In this case, Surfer Girl came out in September of 63. With the Beatles was released in November of 63. And next week, we will be back to go track by track through with the Beatles. And at the end of that episode, we're going to give our final judgment on which of these albums we think is better. So until then, we are David and Jackson Wright, and this is Apples and Oranges. And remember, all you need is my club, and my club is all you need.